Hey, welcome to Reflection as a Service. This is Paul Merrill. I'm your host. And tonight I have a very special situation here. Uh, James is on hiatus and a well-deserved one. He's taken a little bit of time off here. And uh, in the meantime, one of the things that I'm going to try is to have some guest hosts on. So tonight we have Brian Aachen. And he is the host of Test and Code Podcast, the co-host of Python Bytes Podcast, a lead software engineer at Rode and Schwartz Mobile Radio Test. He spent his career in research and development of test and measurement equipment, and he's a promoter of agility. And I just want to welcome you to the show, Brian. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for asking me. Cool. So, uh, you know, you guys know that listen all the time, you know that what we typically do is James and I will either take a concept and kind of run our brains over it and give you the results. Um, or what we'll do is we'll have a guest on and tonight you kind of get a little bit of both worlds. We like to talk about entrepreneurship and software development. I think we're going to end up in the software development world tonight with Brian. Um, but Brian and I have picked out a topic to talk about and the topic tonight is models. And I'm talking about, we're talking about conceptual models. And we'll give you a little bit of information about where we came to that idea and, and why that came up. But Brian, I just, I, I, once again, I want to welcome you to the show. And, and how's your day going? How are things going for you? Uh, my day's going great. Um, I made it home safely. It's been snowy in Portland, but it's good. Yeah, good. Well, it's been snowy here on the East Coast. Uh, we ha we get a different kind of snow. We get single digit inches or, or fractions of inches. And you guys get you guys get feet out there, right? No, we usually don't get any, um, hardly any. But we're the um, we've got like like almost eight inches, ten inches, and the nobody has snow tires, so the whole city shuts down. Oh no! So, and they allow chains on your tires. Yes. Okay. Uh, but hard, uh, but so few people buy them that the first time it snows, they all sell out. So. Gotcha. I ran into a guy that was with using chains here once, and it was on you know one inch of of snow and ice. And I'm like, dude, you're going to tear up the street that way. You can't do that. There's unless there's like a 10 inch base, right? Like, how does that work out there? Um, we, you just kind of have to, since we, we have, uh, it, when it gets cold, it stays just around freezing. So it usually will get above freezing during the day. And then at night it'll go below freezing. So you wake up to a sheet of ice every morning. Um, oh, wow. So you, you don't really have, and it's all hills, so you don't really have an option. Either you have studs or you throw some chains on. Yeah. So, so the one time I was out in Portland, it was at night. And so I didn't really get to see what Portland was all about. And we drove over the mountain, uh, over to Bend. So about two hours away from where you are. And I had no idea about Oregon that basically on one side of the Cascades, it's a high elevation desert. And on the other side, you go across the ridge over to the west side, and suddenly it's that rainforest Pacific Northwest that I, I think about for the Northwest. It's it's really an amazing switch. Yeah, it, we are essentially two different states. I grew up in eastern Washington and would go around and people would say, oh, so it rains all the time there. And no, it doesn't. The eastern half of both Washington and Oregon are very dry places. They are. So, it's the craziest thing. I, I would never have imagined that it'd be that dry and that uh, just just that desert looking out there. But it's a wonderful place, beautiful place, Oregon is. Um, so, Brian, why don't we get to it? Look, here's what happened. Brian and I were talking over Twitter and every once in a while uh, I'll post something and somebody will have thoughts about it. And I, I like interacting with people in constructive ways about all that kind of stuff. And Brian's always good to do that. Um, and so I really appreciated your con, your, your, your ideas on a few things. One was there was a post that I made from someone else. So I, so I tweeted something that someone else had written 
and said, you know, I have some different thoughts about this. And I think it was, was it the testing pyramid? Yeah, I think the article was something about the testing pyramid. And I, I yeah. think your comment was, I'm so sick of the testing pyramid. <laughs> was that right? <laughs> yes, I think it's done more harm than good to our community. So, <laughs> well, Why do you think that? Well, um, if, if, uh, if, so essentially we're, we're telling people the most important thing is your unit test. And above that, there's some integration tests, but we're not really going to define what that is. Um, but it's something other than unit tests. And then at the system level, there's unit user interface tests and those are hard. So only have a couple of those and don't do very much. And what, what, I, one, I disagree with all of those statements, but um, at the very the end result is a lot of developers here, okay, just write unit tests and forget about everything else. And that's what I see. I've seen it in implementation in groups that I've been in, and I see it, um, I've seen it in other teams. I've talked to other people that say that they have an incredible continuous integration system, but it's all based on unit tests. And then they send their product over to a QA team who does manual testing for three weeks or something like that to determine whether or not they can release. And I think we've got automated testing tools that can do high-level tests just fine. I don't understand why we're putting so much emphasis on unit tests. So, Gotcha. So, so to you, when you look at that, and I hate to, I, so you're sick of the idea, so I'm sorry to bring it back up, but I want to use this as a kind of an instance of the idea of models and then move into that conversation a little bit more if it, if it works that way for us tonight. But um, so, so what is it about the pyramid that makes, I mean, so you say the importance is placed on the unit test. Is that because it's bigger or because that's the foundation of the pyramid or because of something that you've read or what, where is that? Well, if I mean, I guess I'm guessing that the pyramid shape is for some reason. Um, I mean, they aren't just bubbles that are next to each other. So uh, it's larger than the others. That I I assume that means you're supposed to write more of them. Um, and I don't get why it's a foundation because they're very different things. Uh, I think uh, when I think of a unit test, I think of somebody, and I I'm not opposed to unit tests. I I like them. Um, I like being able to say I'm going to write a function and this, and I am mentally, I know what it's supposed to do so I can write some tests to verify that it does that. And, and that's helpful to me, but that doesn't tell me whether or not I'm meeting the requirements of the product or not. It's just focused on this little function. Um, I don't know how people tie unit test requirements to the requirements of their system. So... I, th I think those are all great points, and I probably need to go back and read Mike Cohn's original writing about that. I did see where he revised or, or, or reiterated his initial thoughts on that, or, or kind of clarified his initial thoughts a while back on it in a pod in a uh, blog post, and I'll try to find that for a link for this show notes. But, you know, to me, when I've seen this work really well, and this is what I love so much about talking to other people, is that I can't possibly have the experience that Brian has, you know, I, I, Brian, I can't have your experience. I can't go yeah. back and live your life and you can't go back and live mine. And so when we talk to each other, we start exchanging these ideas of where you're coming from with your experience and where, where mine is. And maybe, uh, it opens up new avenues. And so to me, when I look at that pyramid, I think in terms almost, almost in volume, uh, exclusively, almost exclusively in volume. But, um, but I do see kind of a foundational structural part to it as well, like you're talking about. So in terms of volume, I, I see the width of the pyramid as being about volume and I could completely see where, 
one could look at the volume of that part of the of the pyramid and think and, and attach importance to it. And I could totally understand if we thought about it in terms of structure and thinking the fundamental part of it is the, is the unit test. But the way that I look at it, the way that I understand it, the way that I practiced it that's worked has been uh, strictly in terms of, of volume of unit tests being high uh, for a number of reasons. But then in the structural part of it, I see unit tests as allowing you to build a testable product, one that's uh, loose, more loosely coupled and more tightly cohesive, right? Um, and, it, and you end up with a more testable product that way. And I find that when those unit tests are written early, um, we also end up with a lot of the utilities that you need to do those integration tests that you say are, are not well-defined. And, and I think you're right. I think there's been probably less written about service level or integration level tests than either of the other two. Um, and I and the unit UI part I strictly look at uh, almost strictly as a volume issue because they tend to be so brittle and they tend to take so much maintenance um, over time. I don't know if yeah. you've experienced any of that though, or, or if your experiences are different. Yeah, my experiences are completely different. Um, I think if they're brittle, they're bad tests, uh, or you have bad right. software. Okay, yeah, those those are good points. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. But for me, client after client that I sit down with, the the UI tests have generally been written in such a way that they are brittle. You walk in and everything's broken, or lots of stuff is red uh, in your CI environment, or there's not a CI environment, and people are pressing a button to run them, and that's what they're calling test automation. Um, well, I I I never think so. I never use actually. I do hardly any user interface testing. Um, but I think the of system level testing as including a uh, system level API. Um, okay. Okay. So and there's there's another even if even if your customers never see the API, there are um, um, there are people that promote and I'm one of them promote what's called a subcutaneous layer, which is um, being able to hook into the, your system underneath the user interface and um, and being able to test at that le level. And that's where all most of my testing is. Um, I also have a lot of reasons why I want tests in place. I mean, testing, writing tests is effort and the effort has to have pay payback and it has to have value. And m the thing I want the most is I want confidence that the system is going to work and it, and from the user's perspective. And if, if my user is using the user interface or my API and those tests are brittle, then anything my customer does is going to be brittle. I, I don't want a system that's brittle to my user. Um, that's just, if, if so, if, if I've got system level tests that are breaking all the time, you can just think of that as customer code that's breaking all the time. Uh, that's a problem. Oh, I agree completely. And I'm not saying that's the way that uh, UI tests or top level tests should be. The other thing that was interesting to me and what you said, and I think sometimes these discussions, a lot of times people who have, you know, you, you and I are probably at similar points uh, in number of years in our career. I, I'm going to guess we're probably, you, you, one of us may have a few years on the other. I don't know. I, I, I'm not I, gonna started in, I started in 96 okay, uh, so, out of so college. You've got a, so. so you've got a, a few years on me, but, but not very many. Um, I, I think that that gap is probably more negligible than it would have been several years ago. But um, 
you know, I, what I find again and again is people with similar amounts of career uh, of time in a career, they, they, they're coming to sim- very similar practices and very similar um, philosophies because we've experienced very similar things, but we've experienced them in different ways. And sometimes we have different vocabulary and things like that. So when you say the word subcutaneous, I've never even, I've never heard that word. I don't have the SAT score for that word. Okay. Um, Well, I mean, like, like for instance, um, you know, if you got an injection, it's just under the skin. So, okay. All right. So to me, those tests that you're talking about there would be integration tests because the, you're working with a set of code where you've got more than one class working together, or you've got more than, more than one method working together, or you may be interacting. It sounds like with a data source in this case, or, um, or, or lots of other systems, you may have third-party applications that are called, is that, is, or APIs that are called. Is that well, true, some of those tests? Well, in, in my case, um, usually, like at work, it's, it's the same interface the customer's using most of the time. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so we, we do have a... Usually, and mo- it's it's you know it's a test equipment environment that's sold into production and um, uh, production lines. These are not done by people; they're done by computer other computers controlling them. So mm-hmm. there's everything that we can do. You can do from a remote machine, gotcha. and and it's a um, we do have a user interface, and you can see the pictures and do the things on with push buttons and stuff. But that's um, that's mostly. That's in a in an R and D environment, uh, not in a production line, and or when people are just debugging things, uh, they'll use that. But the there's a there's a way to design systems such that the user interface, the uh, graphical user interface, and the remote user interface t- uh, come together really high up. They're really high yeah. in the uh, protocol stack, so that um, you can test almost the entire system except for the graphical user interface part and um yeah i, I don't and get the most value out of that right yeah, yeah and yeah. It's, they're way easy to automate so yeah i i hear you and I, I i there were several thoughts that i had when you were talking about that that it it would it's a shame that we I, i've seen the pyramid drawn with um e to e at the top as opposed to ui um, but the user interface in your case is not a graphical one. It sounds to me like you could almost substitute the layer that you're at as the user interface. Like that, that is the customer that's going to call in. They're going to call in that way at the level that you're at. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can take like a, a, a lot of, uh, even web applications are, are done the same way. The, like for instance, Twitter, Twitter has a, a very extensive, uh, um, interface that's not, uh, what most people use. I mean, I don't right. think people they don't i'm sure they're not testing twitter from like an app a cell phone application or something so yeah yeah and i'm seeing more and more web apps being tested like you're talking about where we're calling a restful api rather than working with the user interface and very um doing very rudimentary tests on the user interface to make sure that it hasn't changed or that nothing's gone crazy on it uh since the last time we touched it because you can get so much of the functionality there yeah well, and so go ahead. One more thing. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about you and I is I think there is a similar experience level. One, and one of the things that fascinated me is I think there was a similar reading uh, in history. <laughs> I think we've read all the same books um, and well, yet came up with different conclusions. So well, that's I, interesting. I, well, I act a lot more like I, I act like I read a lot more than I do. I'm a really <laughs> slow reader. So I have this deep appreciation for every single book that I read. But um, but I do try to read as uh, I do try to read a lot. I read a lot of blog posts now, um, 
more than in the past. But um, I, I, I think you're probably right because it sounds like we're coming from very similar places. To, to me, that conversation and then, and then another conversation that we had on Twitter where we were talking about, I believe it was TDD, wasn't it? Oh, maybe. Or Scrum. I like to bash both of those. Right. So, and, and I don't remember the exact part of that conversation. We'll have to have a link on the show notes as well for this. Um, do you remember that? Can you help me out? I, I should have prepared better for the show. Maybe I can look <laughs> it up. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, I think basically you were saying just now you were bashing TDD. Is that right? I, yeah. Um, the way it's taught a lot of the way a lot of people teach it, I, I do disagree. So I, I actually love test driven development. It was life changing for me. Um, but I was in a situation where, um, I didn't have, it was very difficult to test units. So I thought of the unit in TDD as a functional unit, a functional piece of, of the, of functionality. And, um, and then the rest of it worked just fine. Just, just like that. Um, and that's kind of how I've gone. And then, uh, trying to find out whether I'm doing it wrong or not. I've gone back to a lot of writings from Kent Beck and recordings from him and interviews. And he does pretty much say his, his original philosophy, and this comes from XP as well, uh, was a unit was never, I mean, we define a unit as like this tight, just a function or just a class that was never part of the original writings Mm. that, that came by other people like, uh, Bob Martin and others. Uh, the, um, Kent Beck believes, at least I'm speaking for him, which I probably shouldn't. But what I get from that is there's you can think of the tests in test-driven development as whatever layer makes sense to to teach you information about your software and to, for you to have confidence in your software and to help help you make the next step in implementation. I think you're right. And I, I think it, it could be that sometimes I make sources together um, on some of that. I know that at the same time that I was learning about extreme programming and learning about TDD uh, back in the early 2000s um, and reading those books, I was also working with somebody that's probably still to this day the uh, biggest, had the biggest impact on my ability to program. Um, and so it was probably his ideas about what a unit was and, and whatever it, it, or it may very well have been his ideas that I'm kind of conflating with some other ones when I talk about this stuff. I mean, to me, I've always thought of the unit as being one class or one method or one, the smallest unit that you can, and then mocking out everything else around it. And that being what a unit test is. And maybe there is some flexibility I should try to, uh, consider for, consider for my own, um, benefit. Yeah, well, there was that thing with um, uh, is TDD dead from like uh, the the guy the the Ruby on Rails guy, okay. um, and there was a discussion that he 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 uh, talked about TDD being dead, not really, but um, and, but that he really likes tests, but he was having trouble with the design uh, design issues with um, that with people trying to follow this functional, this very small scale mockist, uh, test driven development and saw huge problems in the architecture because of it. And, um, and so there was a discussion, uh, with a handful of people, including Kent and, and others, um, on this. And they're, they're pretty much all saying the same thing is that that's all that they never told, they never tried to push that in the first place. Hmm. So, um, I mean, mocks weren't part of XP. I never read about it 
ex- mocks when I was reading about testing during XP. So, yeah, that, yeah, I think that certainly was something that I found somewhere else. And at the time, um, there weren't that many great tools for. Uh, at the time, I was in Java, so we were writing our own mocks and things like that. But um, the the other thing that I saw was in XP, the writing in XP and the early test driven development, and even later. Um, there's like a footnote or like fine print that says, by the way, you have to have a QA team to independent testing team testing your stuff also. <laughs> and, and so I usually don't have an independent testing team. So how do you, how do you incorporate testing into your development project so that you correctly test everything without an independent testing team? And that's answering that question is kind of my pursuit for the last few years of trying to figure out where the right balance is. And, and I think that's so key is looking at the context, looking at where you are and what you need to do um, for that particular situation. And that's one of the things that again and again, client after client, I sit down and it's about where where they are today, um, what their vision is for tomorrow, and what I can add to that, where how we can close that gap together. And much of that comes down to pragmatism about what skills do we have on hand? What tools do we have on hand? Uh, how far can we go within reason? And, and how do we make sure that we assess risk properly and mitigate it in such a way that it makes the customer happy, which is a whole different question than how do I add the most quality to this particular product or how do I practice a particular um, practice? And I guess for me in, in these conversations with you, it seems like there's so much wisdom and so much uh, pragmatism to the way that you approach things. And I really admire that and I, I think highly of it. And and yet when I walk away from some of these conversations on Twitter, I feel like, and I'll just say this, I, I feel like you're attacking the model, uh, the model of TDD or the model of whatever. But then when I talk to you in more length, because 140 characters isn't enough to do anything, right? Yeah. Um, but when I talk to you in person, and I, and I know that there's more behind that, like I know that there's more behind what you're saying, and I, I want to know what it is. And that's why I, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is that, you know, I, I don't, I don't, and I mentioned this in an email we had before about, uh, I was trying to think of other models we use. So for instance, with poetry, you have haiku and you have, I, I am a pentameter and you have all these other different types of poetry. Well, I'm not a particular fan of iambic pentameter, but Emily Dickinson did some really cool things with it. You know what I'm saying? Like almost everything <laughs> she wrote was that, right? And I'm not a particular fan of haiku, um, but I've also never heard it in Japanese. And if I understand correctly, it came from Japan. Is that? I, I, I hope I'm right on that. I have no that. idea. Um, yeah. but, but I haven't heard it in the original language that it was written in, in the original way that it was meant to be said. So for me personally, like I don't hate haiku and I don't hate, and I, you didn't, you may not have used the word hate. I'm using the word hate. I don't have a strong distaste for, for haiku or for iambic pentameter. Um, but I also, and I can admire what Emily Dickinson did and I can admire haiku that's clever, but I'm also not going to sit there and like read Emily Dickinson, you know, <laughs> like I'm not going to do that. If I'm going to, it's just one more tool to use, I guess. So I was wondering about your thoughts on that. Like to me, these are models. Um, the model is almost yeah. like a tool in the belt to me. Yeah, but uh, so there's 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 a um, one of the places where I definitely I get you know I, a lot of my inspiration came from and my ideas come from Kent Beck, and the one of the things that he said, and I think a lot of the uh, uh, people that push models and whatever fall back on is this idea that um, pe- people new to a practice 
need to have rules on yeah. how, how to practice it. And then when they get experienced, they'll know when to break the rules. It's the Dreyfus model, right? The, the Dreyfus model is what describes what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> but I, I don't see a lot of people changing later. Oh, I just see people just following the rule. And then you see also consultants come in. Um, there's a root, like for instance, there's a, a word called scrum butt. Right. Um, and scrum butt is a way for a consultant to insult you uh, and your team for not practicing scrum correctly, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh-huh. And and if you read the, the original stuff for scrum, there is no correct way to do it. There's a way to start doing it, and then you uh, gradually change the practice to meet the needs of your team. And the one of the, a lot of this stuff comes from what the agile the agile manifesto and the agile practices uh, but um, again there's not an agile manifesto there's a manifesto for agile software development so if your practices are increasing your agility then they are agile um, if they're not they're not and um, and like for instance uh, putting in a plethora of unit tests with mocks. I don't see how that can make it easy for me to change my mind and redesign a subsystem quickly in an afternoon if I've got 7,500 unit tests that I have to change. Uh, that doesn't and see, seem I've, ad- seen, I've seen exactly the opposite, that it's only because those are there that I can refactor it in such, or change it in such a way that I know that the existing functionality continues to work or doesn't. Yeah, well, does it test? Does it test the original functionality? It, I mean, to or me, those it, those tests would describe what we intended the software to do originally. And if I'm going to do a refactoring, which to me means not changing the functionality, just changing the organization of the code, then I would like to know that the original intent is still there. Um, the other part is if I need to change it because of functional reasons, and I need to change the functionality then those tests give me a baseline to know what I've changed intentionally or what I may have changed unintentionally. Well, I'll give you like a quick example. Like let's say I've got a, uh, a piece of code that uses the triangle distribution uh, statistical model. And, <coughs> and somebody wrote a function to, uh, to return a random number out of, out of a, a, a triangular distribution. And then somebody else came by, and then there were tests written for it, and somebody else came by and went, oh, you know, that's already in the random module. Well, let's just use the, the built-in one and, uh, and change the code. I, would, I, would, I want to write my tests such that I don't have to change any tests for that change. Mm. Well, what and, if it did something different then? Oh, I see what you're saying. So, yeah, to, to me, I would have multiple layers of the test, and the unit test would say, "Hey, look, something changed," and and we can't, we have to do something different with the structure of the code because we changed a library or whatever. Hopefully, the functionality is still the same, and we have the other layers within that test pyramid to tell us if something at a higher level has changed, like a, a functional level test. But if if the out if my promises to the outside world we're all still met. Yes, you'd be fine. That's right. I, I should be fine without, and yeah. I shouldn't have to change anything. The tests that are change detectors or tests that tell me that I changed my implementation, I, I don't see any value in those. I see actual harm, and they, I think they get in the way. 
Yeah. And so my experience on that has been different too. So I, I see design emerging out of the test driven develop or test first philosophy, test driven development philosophy. So a lot of the, the design decisions that I make when I'm writing code are because I'm trying to find a way to test the code before I write it. And therefore I've got a more testable piece of code afterwards and the design ends up being more flexible later on. In, in, in most cases, in my experience, plenty of times I get it wrong and I have to go back later and figure out uh, the, the better way to do it. But that's been my experience. Thinking that a, a testing philosophy can help you design better software, I don't think that's been proven. Oh, um, I'm well, but that's my experience. I yeah, mean, it, right. it may not be but, proven, but it's been my experience, and my experience is all I really that, had to work on, right? But that's what a lot of proponents of test-driven development push, and unit and mockus unit test is um, that if you do this, you're your end software will be better. Um, and I, I just, it seems like a lot of work for no proof behind it. And I, I guess I'm not willing to do that work. Um, I'd, I'd rather, I, I'd rather put the effort where I really want to make my promises. I want to make my promises to the customer, uh, first and foremost. So those tests need to be designed well, very well. And, after that, the promises get weaker as I go down, like a, uh, a package within my software that I'm the only user of that package. That's probably pretty weak, uh, a weak promise. And within a, uh, the functions within a module that work together, those are even weaker. I still want them to work, but if I change my mind, I don't need to, it doesn't need to change a whole bunch of outside tests. And the, um, and then like at a, um, yeah, it, the 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 strength of the promises and the and the repercussions of breaking something, uh, I think those need to be taken into consideration when designing deciding where you're going to put the effort in writing tests. So yeah, well, so with each of these, like I hear you, it sounds like there are a lot of things that you've taken out of this model of test driven development that you tend to use, but then you dislike the model in general because of that. Is that no, what I'm no, hearing? I, I dislike the model that as it's taught from the, the bottom up testing, I think it should be the top down. Okay. I think we should start with, uh, start with user level tests and, um, and break those down where we need, where that sure. isn't giving us enough information to, to write the next piece of code, then write us a, a lower level tests. And you can say, well, I'm going to depend on this other library to do that work for me. And yeah. well, fine, but write a test for that. Make sure that, that it's going to, it's going to pass if it works and it's going to fail when it doesn't work. And, um, and I just usually, when I, when I'm making writing tests in that manner, and I do think, and I want tests at a system level and integration level to help development also. Um, and it, it can't help development if it's written afterwards because development's done. Oh, and I think you're, you're, but you're also, it sounds like you're also, um, uh, for, forgive me, but it sounds like, uh, ordering is important to you here. So, uh, so just, just because one wants to emphasize unit tests doesn't mean that they have to be written first or last. I know that I talked about using unit tests to drive design, but that doesn't, that also doesn't mean that we have to do it at the, uh, internal from, from the bottom up. We could also do that from the top down. Oh yeah, oh sure. I guess. Um, but the 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 
the test that I, the thing that I really want to design well with tests is is my APIs. So the APIs to the customer, the APIs between our modules, those APIs are more important than whether or not I like the design. Right. And um and I I'm I'm also I'm well aware that I'm not very good at writing software. Um, oh, <laughs> who, who uh, is right? I, you think you're so good while you're writing, but then you come back like six months later, and it's terrible crap that you wrote. <laughs> right. So, so I think it, I think I want to keep enough. I want to have enough leeway in my system to keep it agile, so that I can rewrite chunks of it when I know more about the the problem. So, right. you, the person that at the end of a project after they've written all of it is way more qualified to write that software than the person that started. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And um, and so making sure that... And so there's a chicken and egg problem also. If I have... If I can't change the design without changing the test, how do I know that I don't break anything if I'm changing both at the same time? That's That's my issue with change detector tests. Um, I should be able to change the software and be able to run the tests and it still works and I'm, and have confidence that I can ship it. Mm -hmm. If I've got a test that just says, oh, oh, you redesigned this module to, or this function to use a different library function instead of the one I thought you were going to call, uh, who cares? Well, I'm not going to delay shipment. That That's another question of um, if I have a failing test that I cannot get to fail from the system level, but it fails at the unit test level. Maybe that test is too picky. Um, if I, if, if like, for instance, corner cases, if I'm ch testing a function to make sure that negative numbers don't make it crash, but it, in the system together, that function will never get called with negative numbers. Then I'm, I'm over designing that little piece of functionality. Yeah. And I, I, I've, I've run into that conversation many times and um, um, I, I guess I have two thoughts about that. So, so number one, just because a user interface can't do that right now, doesn't mean that it won't always be able to do that. Right. So, so if we, if we disallow negative numbers from coming in from whatever this interface is uh, at, at a higher level, it, it doesn't mean that in the future we won't allow that. So, when we do allow that, wouldn't it be nice to have a check that's already there, especially if you can just very easily have a data-driven test that just throws in a minus one, right? Okay, but how much longer do I take to write that functionality in those tests at the unit level? Uh, well, to make I just, sure that I, it, my premise was that it doesn't take long, so, I mean, that... <laughs> okay. Um, but that if that number is getting passed through maybe six layers of software before it gets to the bottom level, do all of them have to make sure that they're dealing with negative numbers correctly? Well, I, I you know, the, this is this is very hypothetical and all that. I totally understand where you're going from coming from. I guess what I'll say is just you're a pragmatist and I'm a pragmatist. I, I believe um, it sounds like you are. And for me, in my experience, what I have seen that is incredibly helpful is if I have a, a suite of unit tests, for instance, that are written at the low, lowest level and they all pass. And then I have an integration level where everything passes. And then I have a UI level or, or interface level where a corner case like you're talking about fails. 
I don't know where that issue is. It could be anywhere within my code base. If on the other hand, I have a UI level that does the very same test as the integration test, and that particular corner case is missing in the unit level test, then I know immediately what particular part of the code that the, that the issue is in. And I've found that very helpful. So, oh, okay. so having, having different tests at different levels to me or having the same test at different levels or more picayune, more, more uh, detailed tests at the lower levels tells me at least gives me an idea of where it is and that it takes less time to find the problem. Oh, sure. I, I, I could totally get that. It's, uh, um, it's just not an argument that, um, I usually run into they they occasionally we change everything at the same time um but that doesn't happen very often like for instance let's say we the change a uh upgraded to like four levels of visual studio compiler or something or um upgraded from python 2.7 to python 3.6 or something or you know some wholesale you're changing everything you've changed the chipset or you've changed an operating system and you don't know what's going to work and what's going to not work in those cases it would be really great to have a lot of fine-grained tests to tell you exactly where the problems are Mm -hmm. Um, but in my experience the right test to tell you exactly where the problem is isn't going to be one that's going to be written Um, because nobody's (laughs) going to think of that Um, for every but that doesn't happen very much for everyday testing um, this idea that a test has to tell you exactly where the problem is, I think is ludicrous. Well, well I, I used... didn't suggest that every test has to do that. I suggested that it is helpful when some tests do that. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, but the uh, I have a great way to tell where the code, what, what code broke the, the test. It's the code that is different from the last time I did the tests and it all passed. Um, so if you've got like a nightly build or a continuous integration... Well, you check in some new code and the test failed. I don't need to guess where that failure is. It's that code that just got written. Sometimes, not always. I, I can't <laughs> tell you the number of times that I've sat down and I've thought, I, and I hear what you're saying, and it has to be that, right? Logically, it has to be the code that's changed, right? But how many times have I sat down and seen the change set and said it must be in that code, and then I go and look at that code, and it's not because of that. It's because of something that, uh, is is completely outside of that. And of course, that would indicate that there's something else wrong in the process. Totally understand that. I totally get that. But many times there is something wrong in the process, right? Like you have test cases that depend on some type of data that's persisted somewhere outside of your system that you don't consider within certain test cases or whatever. But I can't right. tell you the number of times that I sat down and thought, this change set will tell me exactly what's wrong. And it, it will not. In fact, it's something that happened three weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, if, it, sure. It, if it has the similar failure points as de- depending on your test to tell you where the failure is, I guess. Different yeah. failure points, but they're they're both not perfect. Right, right. Yeah. But but I think these tools can help us identify these problems from time to time. I mean, I think that's why the models are out there. I don't have a new model. I don't have new ideas to come out with in these conversations. I guess what I'm hoping with some of these conversations is that uh, if there's something new that comes out, Maybe it's something that we can put back out there into to the listeners. Maybe there's a different model that comes out of this. And you mentioned one. I don't know if you were serious or not, but the column model. What were you? Oh well, I'm dead dead serious. I mean, if 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 uh, the testing column, yeah, sure. So just write the go ahead and write the uh, testing pyramid, but just just pull the uh, 
the pyramid sides out so that they're straight up and down. <laughs> so they're parallel. Gotcha. Yeah. So that there's absolutely no indication from the model of how many tests are supposed to be in each level. Yeah. Because well, I, that's different depending on what kind of software you're writing. Like um, the software I'm writing has multiple operating systems, multiple uh, languages. You've got DSPs and and uh, multiple threads. You've got interprocess communication. You've got interaction with the outside user. Um, you there's no way you can write a unit test that makes sure that everything works. And every time that I've spent my evenings and weekends trying to debug something, it's never because of a single area of the software. It's because of an interaction of a whole bunch of different things. Huh. Interesting. I mean, have you ever spent like a huge long debugging session that turned out to be just in one function? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow, you yeah. suck. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Um, <laughs> no, I've. Uh, I mean, you, you've never. You, you, it always comes. It always, always comes down to more than one place for you. Like, what about you? I mean, back when we did threading within methods, you never had a case where you were sitting there. And I, I mean, maybe it was because I was younger at the time and didn't have as much experience or something. Um, I'm not going to say that that guy sucks because he's me several years ago. He just didn't know as much. No, um, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry I insulted you. Oh, but, no, that's uh, all right. But I mean, I, I, um, I guess to so, me, it, it just seems like there, there are plenty of times when that kind of thing happens. We just, I just. Multi threading assumes that there's multiple things going on at once right so okay all right so yeah if we expand all right so okay so you're, you're still right <laughs> um, because i would I, how do you catch a multi-threading issue with a unit test okay so what about calling into a third party and this would in my definition that wouldn't be a unit test but if you had a test case of some kind that uh that found that because you're calling to this third party and the third party can't handle or the third party application can't or library can't handle whatever it is you're throwing at it. I mean, that would be, I've spent tons of time trying to figure out a problem that ended up being a one method or in a call to someone else who didn't uh, handle things the way that I expected them to. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's a, that's an argument to say that your tests should include calls to third party libraries. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. <laughs> I'm saying that there are some tests that shouldn't, some tests that shouldn't, and that finding the right mix of those generally helps you identify where problems are. Okay. Um, but but this particular argument, you were saying people spend a lot of time. Uh, all all problems that take a lot of time are because of multiple things happening, and I was giving you an instance when that oh, wasn't sure. the case. Yeah, I'm just saying from my experience. Right. Um, right. I've I've never spent. Well, I probably never. I have a very my my. Long-term memory is very short. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, look, this is a really interesting conversation. I think we focused a lot on test pyramid and test-driven development, so I might have to title this something related to that. It's always <laughs> so much fun getting to know people and hearing about um, different ideas and different parts of, of, uh, of life and, and ways that people have experienced similar things in just completely different ways from completely different point of views, points of view. Um, is there any thought that you want to leave us with in terms of models or, or any of the ones that we've talked about? Um, yeah, it's something that, um, I heard from Michael, uh, Mike, Michael Kennedy from the, he does talk Python to me and, uh, he does Python bytes with me, but he, um, I th he attributed it to Steve Jobs, but I don't know the real quote. But essentially, it's something like uh, all the stuff, everything that you're using, all the software that you're using has been 
uh, written by people that are no smarter than you and me. <laughs> I think and, it's the same with thoughts and everything else too, right? <laughs> uh, well, but I think that I want people to put these models up on the same uh, scrutiny. I think that that if a model helps you, that's great, but don't put it above your own common sense. Uh, yeah. Think for yourself. I love that. And, and I, I really like this conversation. I like BSing with you and I like what you're doing on this podcast. So I want to continue it on. We'll do like the double, double episode thing and we'll schedule another episode in, on, uh, on my podcast and get you on there and we can continue the conversation. That'd be great. Can you give us again uh, the names of those podcasts so that people listening to this can subscribe? So the, 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 the general kind of a similar topic level that you, as you guys have, I've got test and code that talks about software development and software testing. And I do focus on Python, but a lot of the topics are general and apply to everybody. And then uh, Python Bytes, um, that's something I do with Michael Kennedy. So that's uh, Test and Code, at, unfortunately, is at pythontesting.net slash podcast, a horrible URL that will change <laughs> sometime in the future. And uh, um, Python Bytes is uh, Python Bytes with a Y, pythonbytes.fm. So. That's perfect. And how can people reach out to you? Um, hopefully don't, because you're probably <laughs> trying to hit me. Um, the, um, I'm... I'm te- the if you look at on Twitter is great. I'm on there way too much. Uh, Twitter it's a test podcast or Brian Aachen. Um and hopefully you'll put links in there. But uh, I will. If you, I will. if you Google an unpronounceable name like Aachen, you'll probably get me. Except yeah. for on, I tried to get Aachen.com, but there's some guy in Germany that's sitting on it. I think he's uh, using it for his email. So oh, that guy. That yeah, guy. That there's guy. always one of them. I know. You know what? There's actually a guy in Portland or Seattle. I forget. I forget which one of those two it is. Whose name is Paul Merrill? And he's a comedian, and he's sitting on paulmerrill.com. So, uh, so I, I don't know. Maybe there's a, maybe there's I a hate, bio future way. I live, in, <laughs> I live in Portland. If I run into him, I'll uh, you know ask him. You tell him. Yeah. <laughs> tell him Paul on the East Coast wants that. Um, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. I look forward to coming on your show and setting up some time to do that. Once again, this podcast is Reflection as a Service. We generally talk about software engineering and entrepreneurship. Tonight, we've talked with Brian Aachen. He's been our, our guest host tonight because James has been uh, off on a well-deserved hiatus. Uh, I've really enjoyed the talk. Um, once again, we're sponsored by my company, Beaufort Fairmont Automated Testing Services. You can find us online, beaufortfairmont.com. You can reach out to me. Uh, and what we do is test automation, if you didn't get it by the name there. Uh, but we work with companies to help accelerate uh, the delivery of, of applications, the delivery of software, and, and the reduction of risk in, in their systems uh, through test automation. So make sure to reach out to me on that. Um, some things coming up for me. I'm going to be out at the STP in phoenix in march i'll be at triagile in march as well here in the triangle and the research triangle um i've got some webinars coming up find those both for fairmont.com slash webinars about test automation the next one coming up is actually about how testers are affected by continuous integration and how what the basis of continuous integration is where it kind of came from what the history of it is why we want to use it those types of things why it's why it's ten, tends to be a good thing um but once again, we've had Brian Aachen on. I've so much enjoyed this conversation. Thanks again for coming on. And everybody, you know, uh, catch us again on whatever method you found to find us this time. And, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much. <laughs>